Well, good morning, everybody, or should I say good day or good evening, depending on when you find this. Whichever it is, it's good to be with you. This is our daily devotional for Tuesday, February the 20th, 2024, and I'm delighted to have this time with you, especially given where we are picking up today. <clears throat> I don't intentionally do this. I really don't. I try to cover um, sections at a time that make sense when we're going through the daily devotional so as not to drag this. I really don't like to go over 20 minutes. I want to stay right around that time frame. But when I do that, sometimes we end on cliffhangers. And we did that yesterday. In fact, if you watched yesterday, you, you might still be saying, yeah, okay, whatever you say, preacher. Um, the reason I say this is because yesterday I talked a whole lot about Matthew, where Jesus said in chapter 10, this, this business of, I'm sending you out as sheep amongst wolves, therefore be innocent as doves and shrewd as serpents. And yesterday we talked all about that, that, that Paul in Acts chapter 23, which is where we are today, but Paul in Acts chapter 23 is the picture of this, where he is innocent as a dove. We see this business go down where Paul says that, that he's done exactly what the Lord has told him to do. Well, 23, verse 1 there. My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. And then Ananias, the high priest, says to the, the guys around Paul, it's at least two. We don't know how many it is. He gives them the order to strike Paul on the mouth, you know, punch that guy in the face, right? And after they do this, Paul Really, he, he just lays it out. Verse three, then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You know, and I want to come back to that concept today because we didn't really flesh that out so much. But nevertheless, that's what he calls him. Then he says, you sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Right? That he's punished before ever having a trial, ever being pronounced guilty. He, a mockery has been made out of the court. Now, soon after this, Paul has said, hey, you dare say this to the high priest? And, and Paul's reply in verse 5 is, brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it's written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. And y'all, this is not some coy comment in my estimation. There's some that say it is, that, that Paul's trying to be sarcastic here. I don't think that's the case at all because he cites the law thereafter about not speaking evil um, about the ruler of your people. What I think this is, it goes down to Galatians 6. We know that when he's writing the church in Galatia, his eyesight has deteriorated so much to that point that he has to use large letters just to even write something. Okay, um, I, I think this is what's going on here. He really didn't realize that it was the high priest that, that issued this order to, to strike him on the mouth. And so Paul backpedals, right? And he does that because he's acting innocent, right? I mean, or he's not acting. He, he is innocent. He's being innocent here. There's no guile or anything like that. He's as innocent as a dove. Just like Jesus commanded his disciples originally to be, just like he commands you and me to be. But we also see him, oh, he's so sly. He is as shrewd as a serpent. And we just started to, to scrape the surface on this yesterday. Today, we're going to see what I mean even further. But let's pray and then we'll dig in. Our God and our Father, we thank you for this time that you have given to us. And we praise you that we have this opportunity, that the technology exists, that um, you've given us one another, most of all, you've given us your word, 
and your Holy Spirit to illuminate your word for us. You've called us to be people of your word. So now, as we spend this devotional time in your word, we pray that you would bless us in it and guide us, and we pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so what do I mean by saying that Paul is as shrewd as a serpent? The only thing that we got to yesterday that pointed to this was verse 6. It says, Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. Now, yesterday we ended with this, that, that this is innocent as a dove, because Paul is, is being blunt here. He is being honest about his hope being in the resurrection of the dead. Um, this is uh, uh, Now, the fuller picture, his hope, uh, let me see here, where's the passage? I'm looking for it. I said yesterday I'd look it up and I forgot. Um, oh, goodness. I was right. I was right. First Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Paul talks there to the church in Thessalonica about how we have many reasons for hope, but our greatest reason for hope is in the resurrection of the dead. Another way to put that is our greatest hope is that is in the fact that this life is not all there is and that our spirits don't just go to some consciousness somewhere after we die, right? This this Eastern pantheistic monism that's out there, the ideas of Buddhism, Hinduism, other isms, Taoism, those sorts of things, right? The idea that, that we, the flesh is the problem, you know, we, we get rid of the flesh, but then our spirit joins with that big eternal spirit out there somewhere. Um, the idea of Eastern pantheistic monism, you know, you think pantheistic monism is a if you know word origins, that's kind of a contradiction. Pan means multiple. Mono means single. So how can you have a pantheistic, right? Multiple gods, monism, you know, multiple gods, one God. Another way to say this is Atman is Brahman, right? That the soul within you and me, they believe is part of the greater universal consciousness called Brahman out there. Anyway, I don't mean to bore you or complicate you with that stuff. It's I had to learn this stuff, and I'm punishing you for it, too. Um, but nevertheless, that's what seminarians do sometimes. But really and truly, y'all, that's not what we believe in Christianity. We do not believe that this body is the problem, right? And then one day we'll be rid of it, and then we go to become some part of some cosmic consciousness out there, and maybe I'm like a raindrop or a feather. No, 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 no. We believe in the resurrection of the dead, and we believe that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead, that he's the first one that died and rose again with a glorified body and is now in glory, and he points to what's going to happen with every single one of his followers when he returns, right? The dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we shall go up to meet him, right? All of these things is what the scriptures testify to. But in heaven, ultimately, we receive a new body, a glorified body. Flesh is not the problem. In fact, flesh and spirit are, are intrinsically linked together. But this body that we have now will one day be perfected. One day will be redeemed. There's a reason that Jesus said, behold, I make all things new even these bodies that we find ourselves in. And no, this is not an excuse for you to stop that diet. 
So be aware of that. But nevertheless, y'all, we need to take care of the bodies that we have right now, but with the understanding that one day Jesus is coming back and we will receive glorified bodies. So when Paul says this here, that the reason, brothers, I'm a Pharisee, I'm on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead, he's being genuine. He's being honest. This is an innocent statement. He doesn't say that that hope hinges on the fact that Jesus has risen again doesn't give that information. Instead, he just throws out this fact. But y'all, and I just scraped the issue yesterday. The reason this is so brilliant, okay, the reason this is so shrewd is because of who is in the room. Now, as I thought about ways to illustrate this and describe the reality that we're witnessing in the Sanhedrin right here, if this were 15 years ago, I think that I would have had a struggle in coming up with a good example for this. Um, I think I would have had to probably, you know, dig up something from the past about a nation that was sharply divided, that had a political system where you had only two really major components. And those two major components seemed as though they were just complete polar opposites from one another. They disagreed on very core fundamental subjects. They, they couldn't do anything together. Everything just shut down when they had to try to work together. 10 or 15 years ago, definitely longer than that, I would have been hard-pressed to find an example for this. How hard-pressed do you think I was to find an example now? February 20th, 2024. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Look at our federal government, right? You've got Republicans and you've got Democrats. It's a two-party system. Really, that's it. I mean, yes, people run as independents and that kind of stuff. And, and every once in a while you see somebody say, well, I'm this instead. And then inevitably they become one or the other, like Bernie Sanders. Oh, no, no, no. I'm a socialist. Well, he ran as a Democrat. Okay. Um, it's the same way with Republicans. There's some people who say, oh, no, 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 I'm independent. And then they'll come out. Though I will say most of the time people go to the Democrat side of things. But nevertheless, that's not a commentary. That's, that's just reality. But anywho, all of that being said, y'all know how the federal government works now. How good is our federal government at crossing the aisle and, and, and working well together? You and I both know the example of the, or know the, the practicality of that, that, that they're a disaster right now. We are so sharply divided, especially the two major political parties. One party does one thing and then the other party does everything it can to stop it, vice versa, back and forth, back and forth, and nothing ever gets done. Um, a whole lot of money is given to other countries, but that happens. I, anyway, you know, that, that, that's fascinating. Sorry, I don't mean to get political. I, I just think we should let people hate us for free. Silly me. But nevertheless, um, all of these things are going on out there. People aren't getting along. The, the stuff isn't being accomplished. And the ultimate reason behind it, I think, is two things. With our federal government, I think it's that politicians are simply a reflection at this point of their constituency. In other words, they say and do the things that they think will get them the most votes. Okay, But aside from that, too, there are core fundamental differences between the political parties in the United States. Rewind 2,000 years. What do you find here in Jerusalem at the Sanhedrin? You find two parties. One is considered the Pharisees, the other is called the Sadducees. 
And there's a lot of conflict between the two. Not only theologically is there conflict, very practically, politically, there's conflict. The Pharisees were seen as the party of the conservatives, right? They were very conservative. They were, they, they reflected conservative values. They upheld the law. There was no liberal scholarship amongst them. In fact, they were legalist, right? They went way too far with the law. Okay, but they were considered the conservatives. The Sadducees were considered the liberals. Why? Because the Sadducees denied not only the supernatural on several fronts, the Sadducees denied the resurrection of the body. Now, now that you know that, does what Paul did, now do you see some of the shrewdness? And furthermore, there's an even more sharp divide between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, because after Israel had been defeated, you know, a couple of hundred years prior to this, they needed to set up some sort of, of ruling body. And it was the Sadducees that were given control of the temple. The Pharisees had control of the synagogue. The Sadducees had control of the temple. And it was widely thought that the Sadducees were the lapdogs of the Roman government that they were the ones that knew whose palms degrees they sold out to the Romans, and as a result, the Romans left the Sadducees in power. Now, you've got two major, major sources of conflict, and Paul is right there in the middle. Both want him dead to begin with, but then Paul realizes that there may be a way to go forward and to escalate this thing beyond the Sanhedrin. And so he says, hey, guys, I'm a Pharisee. My father was a Pharisee. The only reason this is happening is because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. That would be like somebody going to testify in front of Congress. Okay, keep this in mind, this metaphor in mind, this illustration. That would be like somebody going to testify before Congress because of this massive embezzlement case or they committed major tax fraud, or they owned a company and they produced a product that killed a bunch of people. That's what this guy is being accused of that has to testify before Congress, this hypothetical, theoretical guy. He's got to testify before Congress. And he starts testifying, and he realizes, man, the Republicans and the Democrats want to just fry me over this thing. And then he says, oh, wait a second. He stops his testimony and says, you know, the only reason I'm here is that I'm persecuted because I'm in favor of homosexual marriage and for the government to pay for all transgender surgeries. What would happen then in our current context? Or you could go to the conservative route. The guy says, you know what? The only reason I'm here testifying before Congress is that I don't believe that abortion is right. Oh, y'all, it doesn't matter which one it is. The point is, if you did that in the Congress today, what would happen as a result? Automatically, you would have one of the two parties turn against you, and you would have the other party support you. Because it's such a hot topic, you see. And y'all, the hottest of topics, the hottest of topics, and the differences between Sadducees and Pharisees was what Paul brought out right then at that moment. Verse six, then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and others were Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, my brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. Verse seven, 
When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. Verse 8, the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So whether it's an issue in today's world like abortion or homosexual rights or the use of fossil fuels, Paul, being innocent and telling the truth, chose the issue that was the most divisive issue possible in this room of a two-party system to absolutely turn both parties that were focused on him to turn them away from him and, and toward each other. And so we see, verse 9, there was a great uproar. And some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? Do you get the switch that's taken place? What happened back a couple of chapters ago? They hate him so much that they are literally trying to tear him limb from limb. They despise him. And now you've got Pharisees saying, oh, we don't find anything wrong with this man. In fact, an angel or a spirit might have spoken to him. So not only do they support Paul publicly because Paul has affirmed the resurrection, they even start talking about him like he's a prophet, citing angels and spirits, both of which the Pharisees, or excuse me, the Sadducees ardently opposed. So y'all, it just turns into a free-for-all here. Verse 10, the dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. Except this time, it's not everybody trying to beat him to death. It's the Pharisees are pulling on one side of him saying, there's nothing wrong with this man. Hey, he's one of ours. And the Sadducees pulling from the other side saying, oh, he's a denier, blah, 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 blah. It's a disaster. So continuing in verse 10, he, the commander, ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. And then we find something very interesting indeed. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. And so we see the real plan that the Lord has been working all along. Paul received the warnings. The signs were all there, and indeed, trouble and arrest awaited him, just like the Spirit said it would. But we see that the bigger picture has now been revealed. That yes, yes, without a doubt, Paul was to go to Jerusalem. And he's gone. But the real prize is not the Sanhedrin. No. The real prize is that Paul goes all the way, not to the center of Israel, but that Paul goes to the center of the very world the absolute center of the empire, the mightiest empire, some could argue, in the history of the world. That's where Paul's going. The Lord uses all sorts of means to make it happen. But he starts here in Jerusalem with Paul being as innocent as a dove and as shrewd as a serpent. It starts with Paul listening to the Spirit, yielding to the Spirit and saying what the Lord gave him. 
starts with him dealing like this whitewashed wall. And I briefly said yesterday, think about the indictment that Paul has given to them. You know, the way that, that walls were whitewashed, especially at this time, a certain solution was put on them, a calcium solution that when it dried, it would harden and it would turn white. They didn't clean the walls before they whitewashed them. So all the grime, the dust, the dirt, the impurities, they're all still there. They're just covered up by white veneer. What a convicting thing Paul has said about them, that they're still filthy, they're still unclean, that they pretend to be bright and beautiful, but instead they're just nasty. Paul used, or God used even them to get Paul where he needed to go. Now do you see why I've said that Paul is as innocent as a dove, but he's as shrewd as a serpent? You see, what God did through Paul is he exposed the Jewish world for what it was, that it was a world that was just hateful. And y'all, we're thinking about what happened 2,000 years ago, but doesn't this expose what the world is like today? The very men that were ready to kill Paul now said, oh, no, 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 he's good with us because it tickled their fancy for him to say what he said. And it doesn't it point to the silliness of the world around us, a world that is so confused, a world that's wandering and wandering, a world that devours itself. And it does devour itself. Y'all know that, that cancel culture is a wonderful example of how the world turns on itself. And we see it all the time. And yet, at the same time, we know that the Lord is working through these things just as he was working through these things 2,000 years ago through Paul. So what's the application for you and me? Well, again, we're to be innocent as doves and shrewd as serpents as well. We're to listen to the Holy Spirit and say what the Lord gives us to say. We're to have such a relationship with the Lord that we're ready to testify to his greatness. And we're to remember, you know, it wasn't until all of this took place that the Lord himself comes to Paul and says, take courage. You and I are to take courage, but he tells him specifically, take courage and says, now you got to do this in Rome. After all of this, Paul finally understands what's going on. Sometimes we get a clear picture of why God does what he does, and sometimes we don't. It's the Lord's business what he does. But our calling is one of faithfulness, readiness, being available, and yielding to the Spirit. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this time that you have given to us, and we thank you for this example given by Paul. What a, what a wise, shrewd move in the midst of, of this calamity that he faced. And yet you use this. Let us be wise, not tricky, not guileful, but let us be wise, let us be innocent, and let us trust in you not only on the large scale, but in our relationships and life as we face it. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I'd like to thank you all for being a part of this time. Lord willing, we will be back tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. Tomorrow's a big day at uh, Casa de Malfry. It is Amanda's birthday tomorrow. That's right. Amanda turns 39 years old. Just kidding. Or am I? Am I being innocent as a dove and shrewd as a serpent? No, not really. I'm being a careful husband. But nevertheless, tomorrow's Amanda's birthday, so I'm excited about that. We are in our house. Um, nevertheless, I hope that you all have a wonderful day, and Lord willing, we'll see you again soon.
Take care.